Hello and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington DC based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, Pete Waltz. Thanks, Valerie, and welcome everyone to this week's DC Insider Employer Update. Joining us again for our weekly roundup are David Fortney, Bert Fishman, and Nita Beecher from Fortney Scott. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, Pete. Great to be with you again. Hi, Pete. It's good to be here. Thanks, Pete. I'm looking forward to it. So the beat goes on here in D.C. We're now in week five of the podcast. Let's open up some of the headlines, get a rundown on this past week, starting with COVID. David, what's going on in the COVID challenge? It continues to be the number one concern, uh, really, for the nation and certainly for employers. Really good news. Vaccinations continue to be widely available and generally uh, many, many more people receiving them. Some bad news on the horizon. We have a growing uh, number of outbreaks that is concerned to employers. One big unknown that we still have is that the new OSHA emergency temporary standard. There's no further developments on that. And until that gets clarified, that is a bit of an uncertainty for employers looking to address COVID and reopen. You've been talking about that, David, now for weeks. I thought for sure that uh, that horse would have come in by now. Well, I've given them a red mark so far on their report card. It will come, but they're late. Oh, my gosh. Bert, what's going on in the back-to-work and school scenario? How's that happening? Well, I'm afraid it's a bit uh, grimmer picture. The surge, we're almost in a fourth surge. There are something like 200,000 new cases over an eight-day period. And frankly, it's impacting uh, most everything. There's been a kind of slowdown in companies hiring. There's been a slowdown in companies reopening. There's this uh, hesitancy because they don't have OSHA guidance. And there's uh, we have to recognize that until the schools are open, it's the linchpin to the whole economy. And that is still in limbo because of the recent surge in COVID cases. My goodness. Well, it sounds like vaccines, at least they're starting to crack out. Nita, what, uh, what's the status on the goal for vaccines? Well, it's very exciting, actually, Pete, because we've got uh, President Biden promised that he would have at least 100 million vaccines in arms by the end of 100 days. We're not to the end of 100 days and already 155 million vaccines have been issued uh, to Americans so far. Last week, he said his new goal is 200 million vaccines in arms by the end of the first 100 days. And because of the surge, it's even more important than ever that we get as many people vaccined as quickly as possible. So David, it sounds like uh, we're spending some money to get that done. Will you fill everybody in on this $2 trillion plan, at least where we stand right now? Sure. The $2 trillion plan that President Biden announced, this is uh, his infrastructure plan that he rolled out in Pittsburgh uh, this past week. And in that, it's going to have significant job implications covering almost anything you can think of. Roads, bridges, infrastructure, lead pipes for water, internet, uh, rebuilding of buildings, building new buildings, electric vehicles, the job implications and the workplace implications of this bill, which we're going to talk about in a subsequent podcast, are really significant. But you can see President Biden opening up that second major front, COVID, and now 
the infrastructure plan. Unbelievable. Also looks like we've gotten some new folks uh, nominated up to the bench. Bert, who's going yeah, on? What's going on there? A big week uh, for President Biden. He made good on his promise to diversify the bench. He nominated 11 judges to the federal bench, nine women of the 11, nine of racial, ethnic or religious minorities, uh, led by Judge Kalani Jackson, who was nominated to the appellate court in the uh, District of Columbia the first black woman to hold that post. The D.C. Sir is traditionally an incubator for the Supreme Court. So Judge Jackson is on the shortest of the short lists for elevation to the Supreme Court, especially in light of President Biden's stated wish to nominate black women to the Supreme Court. So that's a kind of that's a very exciting development. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Nita, it sounds like uh, President Biden took the pen to another important executive order this past week. Fill us in on that. He did. We are seeing just an unbelievable surge in anti-Asian violence. And in this situation, uh, Biden had already issued an executive order memorandum his very first week in office condemning uh, racism, xenophobia, and intolerance against what we call the AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islanders. However, there have been attacks against elderly Asian women in particular. Uh, I think a woman was killed in New York while, while others watched. Uh, and he announced on March 30 that 15% of his appointees are going to be identified as part of the AAPI community reinstating an initiative uh, with a focus on anti-Asian bias and violence. And employers can expect this to roll down into EEOC and OFCCP. There's a funding for survivors of domestic violence. And they're also establishing the COVID-19 equity task force addressing and ending xenophobia against Asian Americans. The DOJ is the primary focus of this particular set of movements, but expect that we're going to roll out uh, into the employment agencies as well. Man, it's been it. It is just one up and one down as as we go forward. And it's tragic to see some of those things that are happening. But let's talk about how all this stuff is going to impact employment laws. And I know let's talk about this filibuster rule that's coming down the track and how it's going to impact two specific labor bills that are pending in Congress uh, Bert, can you open us up with that? Yeah, uh, thanks, Pete. Uh, first, I'd like to start by clarifying uh, what the filibuster rule is and how it's going to impact here. The filibuster rule is really a Senate rule that requires 60 votes to pass most any law. And, you know, if you're going to block a vote to, that has support, it used to be that someone had to stand up and talk for as long as possible until people got bored or got convinced or they took a vote to move to cloture, which is, that is to say, blocking debate and then moving to the vote. And that took 60 votes. We all know Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Deeds goes to Washington. Some of us remember Strom Thurmond doing the same thing to block the civil rights legislation. Now a simple showing of hands creates cloture, stops debate, and that takes 60 votes. So there is essentially a 60 vote barrier to passing most every legislation. The issue has become focused and renewed because of voter suppression laws and the presence in the Congress of what they call H.R. 1, S. 1, the Voting Rights Act. And it's now before the Senate. This bill would profoundly alter how elections are run, principally by establishing numerous federal rules for elections, most of which are now largely controlled by the states. 
And the Democrats are now at the point of considering altering the filibuster rule, which means really eliminating the need for a 50 vote requirement to pass HR1. And although this is a heavy lift, there is a history to uh, the filibuster rule. You know, it started uh, when I was a kid, it took 67 votes to get to cloture. Well, that was modified to 60. Uh, David, you had a point? Yeah, well, a couple of things, Bert. The underlying issue is, are we going to have minority rule or majority rule? The filibuster allows less than 50% to control the question and the agenda. And that's a very fundamental question. The rule's been changed to allow majority rule on judges, Supreme Court justices. Now the question is, are we going to allow that to extend to other bills, other initiatives? Voting rights is the tip of the spear, but it, the outcome of this is really going to determine the impact on some of these other key pending labor bills. Although the minority uh, issue is easy to state, it is more complicated. There are political and philosophical issues on the political realm. You have to remember the law of unintended consequences. You know, Be careful what you ask for. And there are many people who recognize that with Congress in the balance, in just a couple of years, we could have a different Congress and a different president passing totally different laws. And many Democrats are concerned about what might happen in 2024. And on a more political philosophy is, do you really want to discard any institutional efforts to win even modest bipartisan support for any significant legislation? And if you got rid of the filibuster rule, you could just as easily ask, why do we have two houses of Congress at all? And these are issues that are being actively debated in Congress right now. And that's why it's not as black and white as majority minority. It has to do with the formation of Congress and the way we pass bills. So let's talk about these two key labor bills that are pending in Congress. David, why don't you start with the PRO Act? Sure. The uh, Protecting the Right to Organize, or so-called PRO Act, whatever becomes of this filibuster rule is going to be key to whether the PRO Act can or cannot be passed in the Senate. At the moment, it's not even clear it can get 50 votes, assuming that the filibuster rule could be lifted. But the PRO Act is such a fundamental bill. And even for employers that do not have unions, that don't typically think about unions, which is roughly 95% of the American private sector workplace is not unionized. So I can sense a lot of employers saying, well, I don't have a union. What do I care about that bill? You need to care about the bill. And there's a number of reasons why. Number one, the bill redefines as a matter of law who are independent contractors. It adopts that California test that effectively will make all gig workers your employees, and they'll do that so that they can vote in a union election. Number two, it redefines joint employment and expands very dramatically the rule of joint employment and says that persons that are joint employers can also be part of union organization. Number three, very common agreements that, that we have in uh, pre-employment agreements, whereby we waive class and collective actions by imposing arbitration. All those rules would be changed uh, under this. There are a number of other changes that include tilting the field uh, when you have a union campaign to make it decidedly more pro-union, unabashedly so. And finally, whole new remedies Individual managers and officers at companies can be held personally liable. 
and the trial bar has got their piece of it. They've got new civil litigation claims that they can file against companies. So it promises to be on many, many fronts, a fundamental realignment of the labor laws. If I could just point out that's all of these issues are part of the reason why the bill may not succeed with or without the filibuster. And that's, you know, you can't swallow the pig and choke on the tail. If you're going to get rid of the filibuster, if you're going to get rid of the 60 vote requirement, you should be pretty darn sure that you can pass the bills you're going to bring before the Congress. And there is certainly no certainty that the PRO Act will get 50 votes from the Democrats. In fact, uh, Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, has already told the unions that if he doesn't get 50 co-sponsors, that means all of the Democrats or all of the Democrats plus a few Republicans, he's not even going to bring it to the floor. There's that much opposition to it. Well, but depending on how this bill gets sliced and diced, the issue of union issues is, is starting to make some strange political bedfellows. We have Marco Rubio who is shouting his alliance, his solidarity with the unions at Bessemer, Alabama, at the Amazon warehouse saying, look, I'm for you. I mean, he sounds like Joe Biden. You know, yes, I'm pro-union. And it's interesting. So do we count Marco Rubio as willing to support part of the PRO Act? I don't know. He said no. But increasingly, some of these, I'll call it Trump wing Republicans that have solidified with the worker now find that if they're called upon to solidify, Biden is smart because he's trying to get them to support this pro-union bill. We'll see. I think uh, that's a bit optimistic. Uh, Rubio, almost the next day, didn't retract his support for the Amazon workers, <laughs> but he came out strongly against the uh, pro. I got to stand between the two of you, you know? That, and that's I'll tell you, of all, the got from yeah, his, uh, all the references to farm animals, whether they're wet hens from the last episode or <laughs> swallowing a pig, I don't know what the heck is going on with you guys. Let's move on to another topic. Nita, help us out with this Equality Act, if you can. Let me just go back about 20 plus years, and David and Bert can can follow up on that. It's the Employment Anti-Discrimination Act was going to add sexual orientation and gender identity to Title VII. And it would be passed by the House when there were Democrats and die in the Senate every year. Sometimes not even passed by the House, depending who was there. Last summer, the Supreme Court answered part of that issue, which is does Title VII protect LGBT from discrimination in the workplace? The answer the Supreme Court said is yes, sex in Title VII covers uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, at least in Title VII. And they went on to say, however, that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, we know as RIFRA, would give religious organizations any possible exemption or protection or defense from allegations of discrimination based on LGBT discrimination. And that led to what is known as the Equality Act, which is a combination of INDA, basically adding specifically sexual orientation and gender identity to Title VII, but also saying that employers can't use RIFRA to defend themselves against allegations of discrimination. There is already in Title VII an exemption for religious organizations they're allowed to discriminate in favor of co-religious people uh, in certain areas. And the Supreme Court has made that very broad. 
But what happened after the Supreme Court decision is another part of the Equality Act, which is that it expands beyond Title VII. It says sex in every case where there's sex discrimination, and we're talking about housing and schools and being on juries and credit, that in all those cases, the Equality Act would protect us, uh, those who are LGBT from discrimination, not just discrimination against in the workplace. And that's very important because there were actions after Bostock by the prior administration to continue to discriminate against the LGBT community. And currently there are 27 states who do not protect the LGBT community in the workplace. David. I will have to say, I understand trying to extend and expand the Bostock protections more broadly. That's one point. But it seems to me that when you freight it with the additional, effectively, the rollback of RIFRA, that is such a lightning rod for so many Republican conservative interests. It's guaranteed to uh, garner fierce opposition. And strategically, I don't understand why they have to do that. Honestly, it's one thing to extend Bostock and simply say the Supreme Court said this. We want to make sure it's not just Title VII. It's all parts of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Great. But then they take the additional step of saying we're going to limit religious freedom protections. That's a big deal. You know, uh, it also strikes me that they don't even need legislation to do that. There are suits pending in virtually every court in this country trying to extend the Bostock definition of sex in Title VII to all the titles of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Title IX, Title IV, Title VI, housing, education, schools. So there is a way. Unfortunately, it's going to take a long time. You know, litigation is a slow and brutal process, but there is a way of getting to go without having to go through Congress with this RIFRA issue. Bert, let's give Nita the final word on this. I want to make two points. One, David's point, which is uh, they have pushed away people who would be natural supporters of this law by adding the RIFRA uh, exemption. Um, But they've also gotten the state legislatures to start passing anti-trans laws as well. So they've really stirred up a hornet's nest out there. So it's been a busy week and continues to do so. Next week on the DC Insider podcast, we're going to unpack President Biden's American jobs plan, his $2 trillion infrastructure bill, and what that means for employers. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Have a great week. Valerie, take us out. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.